on this edition of the program. Your old pal goes down to the border. Joined by a few friends, Andrew Heaton, Brian Brushwood, Bonnie Brushwood, the mayor of Miami. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, V and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to McAllen, Texas, for another edition of Politics, Politics, Politics. This one's a bit of an odd duck. Uh, We are going to talk about a major issue in some cases, including the Republican primary, the top issue for voters. That is immigration and our southern border. And as you're going to hear throughout this episode, I think it's more and more clear that those are probably more than one issue that everyone can agree is fundamentally broken. But before we get into that, let's get into why I'm here. I was approached a few weeks ago by an organization called Americans for Prosperity Foundation. Now, you've heard me talk about Americans for Prosperity In the past, specifically in the last several months, Americans for Prosperity, the Political Action Committee, the PAC, backed Nikki Haley, specifically in Iowa. That was a very, very big deal because it gave her door knockers and volunteers that she wouldn't have otherwise had. And specifically, a very, very deep pocketed organization that would back her play. AFP is still backing Nikki Haley, although they have said that they are directing more of their time and energy toward electing Republican candidates in the Senate. With that being said, Americans for Prosperity, AFP, is a part of what is affectionately known as the Coctopus. Many of you will remember hearing about the Koch brothers. They were the uh, villain du jour of the aughts and tens, uh, specifically in the uh, post-Citizens United world. There is only one Koch brother these days, but they have long been very, very, very deeply involved in a lot of varying different policy policy positions. So for a second, we're going to put aside the fact that AFP is backing Republican politicians and is specifically backing Nikki Haley and focus on something else that their foundation has spent a lot of time dealing with. And that is immigration. Put simply, AFP is a pro-immigration organization. In fact, they've been often criticized on the right for being globalist. They are for open borders, their critics would say. And certainly they are more on the side of people legally being able to make a living in the United States from somewhere else, if not a citizen. Part of what you will hear in this journey is a holistic approach to immigration, which I will admit to you now did include why there needs to be a clearer system and better protection for varying kind of visas. So why am I here then? If they want more immigration, why are they bringing me and a bunch of other media and influencers down to the border so they can see how much of a mess it is? And trust me, friends, they are under no illusion that it is an absolute mess. The reason why, at least from my vantage point is that they understand that nothing is going to get done with what they want done until there is more understanding and our current crisis is in some way addressed. They want to effectuate action. And I will say that as I am recording this, we are all but done with our little junket. And 
there has been anything but a heavy hand in terms of what they were trying to feed us. In fact, they keep asking me if there is anybody I want to talk to or talk more to. So with that being said, we begin our little audio journey. These were all recorded during the uh, the day that we were out there, except for this clip. This is a clip of me getting ready to go out there, talking with somebody that does not spend a whole lot of time going over the nuts and bolts of stuff like this. The woman who is driving me to the airport. My wife. I am in the car with my wife, Ashley Paramore, driving me to the airport. That's me. Uh-huh. You were saying it's you're interested to see what my thought is. Yeah. On the border. On the border. What do you expect or what do you think? What do you think I'm gonna find? I mean I I mean I, I would probably personally find it to be a very boring trip, but I'm I'm mostly curious just I guess, you know, one, what you're actually gonna see and do there. Like are you gonna like go look at the border and you know, be like, Oh, that's a that's that's a wall or that's something. That's a border. Um, and also the organization itself. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you were telling me. Yeah. Um, and I have not not yet looked into this organization that it's an organization funded by one of the Koch brothers. Yeah. But you also told me that it's pro-immigration. Yes. But also, like, pro, we need to deal with the border so we can actually get to the meat of the immigration issues. So that's how I understood it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm just, like, really curious to see where that lands because I typically wouldn't expect, I don't know, like, the Koch brothers or, or something, or brother, yeah. to um, be pro-immigration. They have been for decades. I, I mean, I didn't know that. that. Yeah. That was a surprise to me. So I'm just really curious to kind of hear what that take is. Because I, I don't think anybody would disagree that our immigration system's really But, um, yeah. yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I'm just curious to hear what they tell you and what you do. And- I'm really curious to go with Bonnie. Because she grew up in that town. And so it's like, we're going to have a perspective of somebody that actually, like knows people there. It's not just going to be, you know, a bunch of vulture journalists being like, hey, shopkeep, give me a quote. Yeah. Like, Bonnie probably knows the shopkeep, so that's going to be, that's going to be, I don't know about fun. I keep wanting to say fun because I'm going on a a two-night trip with, like, four of my friends. (laughs) Uh, So, like, it does seem like it might be fun, but also it's about a humanitarian crisis that has you know, materially changed and, and uh, you know, affected this election. Do you think about the border differently, like, now than you did, let's say, five years ago? Um, the, not really. I think, you know, I'm, I'm generally pro-immigration, and I, I know that the border is a kind of a, a cluster for a bunch of reasons, but I, most of the, most of the problems that I hear about are like in relation to the border are just anti-immigration in general and not so much about like the process that's being bad. Yeah. And so I think for me, like for aside from the processes, like I just genuinely don't have an understanding of like what the problems actually are outside of that. And that's yeah. something I just haven't had enough interest in to, to, to dig into too much, to be totally honest with you. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. Uh, uh, because as an issue, it's very much changed uh, 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 polling-wise. There, there, are, there are things I didn't think I would ever see in my entire life about uh, independents and Democrats having a different... Uh, a look at the border. The border, I think, is largely, to your point, on on the left, kind of been this like red herring, this almost like you're telling on yourself issue of like if you really care about the border, what you really are saying is that you hate Mexicans. Um, and that seems to have changed. But we will. Uh, uh, that that's what I'm. I'm mostly curious to know if there is anything there on the ground. 
that would help tell that story of, yeah. of why in America things have, have the ideas have changed so let's talk a little bit about McAllen, Texas because I had no idea what to expect when I landed in McAllen, Texas be it somewhere between the sepia-toned <laughs> shots of Mexico by Steven Soderbergh to a ramshackle one-horse town. I literally had no expectations. And what I found as we began our trip during the morning hours was a fairly bustling upper-middle-class Texas town. And the reason why is because McAllen is the center of a massive amount of trade. And wherever there is an exchange point, there is money to be made. Quick economic facts. The relationship between the United States and Mexico has ballooned over the last few years. In 2022, the total trade in goods and services between the two countries amounted to approximately $863.4 billion. During that period, U.S. exports to Mexico were valued at around $362.7 billion, while imports from Mexico totaled about $500.7 billion. This trade dynamic reflects the deficit of approximately $138 billion for the United States. And it was in early 2023 that Mexico emerged as the top trading partner for the U.S., surpassing China. This was a significant shift in trade dynamics marked by Mexico's total bilateral trade with the United States reaching $263 billion for the first four months of 2023. That's more than 15% of total U.S. trade. And so we begin with the idea of what the border wall means to McCallum. Because you can see, as you drive down the road, a bustling area of warehouses and industrial facilities for which goods are warehoused, they are moved from one place to another, they are sold and resold depending on people that want to buy it coming across or or having it shipped back. There's just a lot of money to be made there. And it was pointed out to us, and at least it seemed visually true, that partly this is able to continue to thrive because of the border wall. If this economic hub were mixed entirely with some of the chaos that has happened at the border, not only throughout the years, but specifically over the last three, when migration has ballooned by every available metric, then this process might not operate as efficiently as it does. And the way it does now is pretty good because McAllen just kind of feels like Orlando. Here was my reaction when we got to the border for the first time as I was looking at the Rio Grande. On the border between the United States and Mexico, I believe what I am looking at right now is the famous razor wire that was the subject of a Supreme Court ruling not too long ago where Governor Greg Abbott of Texas put up his own border uh, restraints <laughs> that were ruled to be unconstitutional. This is something that uh, has escalated over the past few months. Brian Brushwood's here. How you doing, Brian? Uh, it's a lovely day. It's it is gorgeous. It's tempting to hop in the, this beautiful river and yeah. swim to Mexico. Yeah, you think, how long, if we were going to race from right here, how, how long do you think it would take to get from one side to the other? Uh, probably less time than it will take for us to get back. Yes. <laughs> I would say it's it's about as wide as like uh, the... Uh, uh, about an Olympic-sized pool. Maybe, yeah, maybe a touch longer, but yeah, but not, I mean, certainly you can very much, you know, you can, you can see to the end there. Uh, we've been driving around McAllen and the surrounding towns. Probably the biggest thing that, that has 
kind of touchstone for me was uh, exactly how much money comes through here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bonnie Brushwood, who grew up here in the uh, Rio Grande Valley, uh, uh, how has this place changed since you grew up in these areas? Uh, I don't see anything different. That's the exact same. <laughs> They're the same picture. Yeah, it's essentially same trash, same whatever, just yeah. kind of piling up in the areas. And, um, the buildings don't look any different. Although they did point out that uh, because it's a chain, like each individual city is only 100,000 to 200,000 people. But as a chain, this whole area becomes, you know, a megaplex of, of you know, over a million people as resi- residents. And then on top of that, just uh, the supernatural amount of commerce uh, that comes through billions and billions of dollars. Um, it, uh, so, so far, everything we've seen has seemed very well organized. Well, that's, you know, so uh, uh, there's an orange theory right next to our hotel. <laughs> the 5 a.m. was waitlisted. So that means that there was, there was already enough people that they packed the class, which tells me two things. Number one, uh, McAllen wakes up early. Yeah. Number two, uh, that they're rich enough to do Orange Theory, which means like like it, it, what it looks like to me was a very middle class. This is a very middle class, uh, upper middle class uh, town. Yeah. Or at least this area of it, uh, which I would imagine is because there's a ton of shipping that comes in and out. Well, the uh, uh, one of our guides mentioned that he lives in the town of Edinburgh. Um, Edinburgh High School was one of. Uh, the reliable fundraiser. I would do my magic show for 800 of the most well-behaved students uh, yeah. uh, I've ever. Uh, I don't know, four or five times. I did need a quick clarification on exactly who put the razor wire there, and so I talked to one of the policy experts for Americans for Prosperity. All right, so I have confirmed that the razor wire that I am looking at is indeed stuff that was put up by the state of Texas here to explain uh, uh, part of uh, some of this is uh, Jordan Freshetti. Yeah, so we're over here. We have the razor wire uh, brought up in part of like Operation Low Star by Governor Abbott of Texas. And you may have heard a little bit about the Supreme Court case uh, from a couple of uh, weeks ago. Yeah. It was actually really just one paragraph. Essentially, them saying, "Hey, look, yeah, people think it's like this big case. It's one paragraph." No, yeah, we, yeah, it yeah. wasn't even like it was like a ruling. It was, it like, it was, yeah, like it was, it was an emergency yeah. case. Yeah. It was like one. Sorry, you guys are doing it every Yeah, <laughs> yeah. was just like one, like quick little paragraph saying, "Hey, look, like, yes, the feds can keep removing razor wire, but it doesn't say that, for instance, he can't keep putting it up or gotcha. he can't make more border wall." And it's a very interesting question as to what, where the state has power, where the federal uh, government has power. And generally speaking, it's understood that the federal government has power over the border. Yes. But that's not necessarily, like, set in stone. So I think we're going to see some more uh We're going to see that this. fleshed out. Like, as the time goes on. Yeah. As, as this becomes more of a fraud thing. And so what we're looking at here for to paint a picture in people's mind is razor wire up on top of an embankment here right. on the Rio Grande. And that, if I, if I understood the situation correctly, was part of the issue is that if somebody is coming through the Rio Grande and is, you know, uh, uh, not having a good time, is choking or drowning, uh, then the fact that there's razor wire there is impeding our ability to go and save them. To go and save them, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the razor wire is not always going to be on an embankment. Sometimes there's very little and this person's getting out of the water and they get yeah. right to the razor wire. Gotcha. The embankment's not always going to be this high is what I'm saying. Yeah. So I think that there is like a valid reason for that, right? But at the same time, also there's cases, I mean, at least from the state of Texas's point of view, where the feds were cutting razor wire just all over the place, yeah. right? Even where there wasn't a place where somebody was going to need to rescue themselves or whatnot. So the question really becomes like, where exactly are they putting the razor wire? What jurisdiction does the federal government have? And that is very much an unanswered question. And we will continue um, to will be answering that. Continue to be trying <laughs> as, to answer. The United as States border is States. divided up into nine sectors. Four in Texas, Laredo, Big Ben, Del Rio, and El Paso. Two in Arizona, Tucson, and Yuma. And two in California, El Centro, and San Diego. The very recently retired head of the Yuma sector spoke to us next if this doesn't come across but i want to i'm going to um i'm going to speak later tonight and give you a really a more formal presentation of what i have to have but 
uh, it's important for you all to just kind of have a conversation while we're here. Uh, Jordan mentioned last night that uh, one of the chief's uh, congressional testimonies, if you've been to one sector, you've been to one sector because everybody has a very unique set of challenges. And so I want everybody to look to their left and look to their right. And you probably can only see a couple hundred yards either direction because the water, the, the river winds. This is why you can't take a one-size-fit-all approach to border security because you can have camera towers, but they can only see to the bend of the river. So this tower can only see to the point of the turn of the river, so we don't know what's behind us. That tower can only see to the bend of the river, so we don't know what's on that side. So you need a lot of technology over here, right? Um, there was a question about the aerostat. That was the balloon up there that we'll see at another uh, spot. That's where these cameras can only see so much. They see linearly and they look this way. But as you can look around you, the canopy is so thick. So you have to look from above. So again, a different type of technology to look down to kind of see inside what's happening, what's crossing in these wide open areas. But the river poses a very unique challenge for the Border Patrol because there are areas that uh, right here where there's probably a channel in there where you couldn't drive across. But there's areas further upstream where you could drive a vehicle across. There's plenty of spots where you can walk across. You see that like in the Del Rio sector where the river may only be two or three feet deep. We pointed out the life vests. We pointed out some of the other trash that's around there that people are using as floating devices to come across here. This is one of those things that just happen and you have to be at the right place at the right time. That is why technology is so important. Now, one of the big questions, and, and they kind of talked about on the way over here, is why, why isn't the wall at the border? Okay, well, Mother Nature has created a natural barrier here that at least you know, can, can potentially slow them down. But because the river changes and ebbs and flows, and Texas is 97% private-owned property, you have to kind of work with the property owners of where you put your wall. So we have you know, kind of conceded certain areas of the border to put the wall in, in, in the most opportune tactical spot for the Border Patrol. And that's another critical piece is the Border Patrol agents and their leadership have to be in the decision-making process because we want them to have the most tactical advantage. Um, the wall, and I'll say this again tonight, the wall for us was designed to impede and deny entry where it can. It's clearly not going to impede or deny entry on a river because it's off. They're already on U.S. soil here. But it can control and contain, and that's what happens when we have the river bound. That's why it is in places that is off the border to give border traders the best possible response time and, and reaction time when you combine that with technology. So the camera sees things approach and cross. The wall is going to slow it down to give border traders the time to respond and provide a tactical response. So that's that's one of the neat things about uh, each sector and having a river boundary. This helps, but again, because of the natural turns and curves, you can't, there's not enough technology out here that you could line up to see everything. So it's that right combination of infrastructure in the form of wall, technology in the form of cameras, but most important, importantly is agents to respond. Now, I don't know if you got to see it when we first got up here, but there was a Border Patrol agent just past that, uh, right at the turn, he was in his uh, white pickup truck. So there's agents out here. Um, now, to one of your questions, on the other side, there's going to be farm roads and ranch roads and all sorts of uh, navigable things to get them to this border. This was a hot spot for years of a place to cross because as you know, it just gets you right to the highway. And so, as George was mentioning, the Water District, working with the state and the federal government, came up with the best plan so they can still maintain their plan operations, but also provide the security they need to slow things down. Um, again, we, we will, you'll have plenty of time with me this evening, and I'll speak a lot more kind of, uh, uh, you know. The biggest question that I had going into all this was whether or not we were going to see any action, whether or not we would see any migration. And during a reception the night before, I have to be honest with you, there was an almost perverse expectation from both myself and some of the other folks there. It's 
Like, why did we come all this way if we're not going to see the thing that you see on television? And for the first time, when we were there by the river, did I get my first sense of the real human element of this? Be it for drug smuggling, human trafficking, or the platonic ideal of somebody escaping a horrifying situation and simply wanting to come to the United States because they've heard that this is a country worth sacrificing everything for. Getting across the border, at least where we were, swimming the Rio Grande, is not easy. Especially if you traveled from a long way to get there. It would not be the last or most touching element of the humanity of this trip. And we'll get to that after the break. This is your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Get two bonus podcasts per week, each and every week. And this week, it'll be live from South Carolina, where Nikki Haley didn't drop out. Thought she was going to drop out. I was on a bus with a bunch of other political people. We were wondering if she was going to drop out. She said she had a state of the race announcement. The state of the race was exactly what it was before. I don't know exactly how much of an announcement it was. But anyway, I'll be in South Carolina and you will be the first to hear my voice from the Palmetto State. If you are at Take Politics Seriously dot com at the three dollar level, just put that custom RSS feed in the podcatcher of your choice. Set it and forget it. The political organization No Labels is grappling with a dwindling number of potential candidates as it pushes for ballot access for a possible independent presidential bid this year. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin were rumored to be the top presidential picks for the organization, but both of them have said no. Larry Hogan is running for the Senate seat in Maryland as a Republican, and Manchin ruled out a presidential bid just a few days ago. Quote Democratic strategist Brian Dory. They're still in the stables, and Trump and Biden are turning that third turn on the Kentucky Derby. It's a pretty big lead to make up. Yeah, Manchin saying that he was not going to run is interesting, mostly because Joe Manchin loves to be in the center of things, and you would have thought, well, okay, if he wasn't going to run for Senate, then he'd probably run for president. But guess what? He ain't running for president. I don't know who no labels is going to run, but they are rapidly running out of big-name people. At least big-name people that have a history with their organization. Although I guess Chris Sununu is still out there. Little money update. President Biden's re-election team now has $130 million in the bank, while the Republican National Committee has little cash, and Donald Trump's team is spending tens of millions on legal bills. This according to Axios. Despite Democratic angst over the president's poor polling and the Biden campaign uh, fretting, both privately and publicly. They announced Tuesday morning that they'd raised $42 million in January, adding to his vast fundraising advantage over Trump and the RNC. The RNC has started the year with just over $8 million in cash on hand and Trump's campaign at $33 million on hand. Neither has released fundraising totals for January. Biden, the DNC, and other affiliated committees continue to rake in contributions while his Republican rivals still attack each other. Trump's legal challenges show no sign of going away. Nikki Haley raised $16.5 million in January, including $11.7 million from grassroots supporters, according to her campaign. And Trump's political fundraising apparatus spent more than $50 million on legal costs alone last year. Now, what does that mean? I don't know if it means a whole hell of a lot. Incumbent presidents often have a financial advantage going into an election year. Trump and the RNC had exactly that against Democrats and Joe Biden before 2020, but Biden ultimately made up ground. And that is your update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go to make sure that you are getting the bonus episodes. And now, 
back to our show. We join you in progress with Mayor Suarez of Miami speaking to our assembled junket about his thoughts on immigration. First of all, thank you all for being here, for making the trek over here. Um, it's important that you get an on-the-ground perspective of what's going on to, to get a sense for, for what's really happening. Uh, we see a lot of things on TV, and depending on what news channel you watch, you probably get a different perspective. This is my second time here, and I can tell you that for all of us, we know essentially what the problem is. We know there is absolutely no control of the border. Uh, and this is creating a human trafficking crisis. This is creating a fentanyl crisis, a drug crisis. But this is also wreaking havoc on American cities. And we're seeing that it's not a partisan issue. You don't actually see a lot of Democratic mayors calling out the administration and then being sort of a name that's persona non grata by the administration uh, for highlighting the problems that are here at the border. We know that there are tens of millions of people that are undocumented. We know that that presents a problem because of the resources. We also know that uh, we don't know who they are in many cases. Uh, we don't know where they come from. And there's a lot of uh, theories about uh, what countries uh, they're originating in, uh, you know, some of which are adversaries. We also know um, that this is an economic issue. We know that uh, we're sending $400 billion in net outflows to China on an annual basis. And they're stealing another $200 billion in IP every single year. And that's resources that we can be using to reinforce our own hemisphere. Uh, where we're seeing uh, poverty often be the biggest driver to try to come to uh, to push people into the U.S. For, for things that we all want, which is prosperity for ourselves and our children. My parents uh, came to this country legally at 12 and 7. Uh, it's a beautiful story. Uh, my dad was a 9th of 14 kids. They came from Cuba. Um, and if you ever want to know what government equality is, go to Cuba for six months, and you'll see where everybody's equally poor and equally miserable. There's equality, for sure. Uh, but our parents came uh, because we knew that promise was a fraud. And they came to the greatest country on the planet. My dad got a full scholarship to high school, presidential scholarship to college, and two graduate degrees from an Ivy League school, and was the first Cuban mayor of Miami in its history in 1985. I'm the first Miami-born mayor. Uh, we're a, a community of immigrants. Uh, you know, we're a community where 70% or more of the people who live in my city were not born in my city. I'm actually the anomaly. And so... Uh, the people who are we integrate uh, on an annual basis uh, are people from every single walk of life, from every single, often Latin American country. Um, Sol is from uh, Argentina uh, and had a long and arduous process to become a legal citizen. You can ask her uh, how difficult it was for her. Um, and so we're, we're a city that also has a, a beautiful American story. Right? Unlike some of these cities across America who are failing to be able to assimilate uh, people, we have been accustomed to assimilating uh, immigrants to this country for many, many, many years. We have a 1.5% unemployment, which is the lowest unemployment in America, and that's great until you want to open up a small business and you need employees. And so we definitely need to right-size legal immigration as well. So there's a component of this which is not just about you know what's happening illegally at the border, got to create an objective, non-political, in my opinion, or non-politicized solution to that problem once and for all. Because I think if we continue to allow this to become a political football, this is, you know, it's just like the budget. You know, we're never going to ever be able to solve it. It's going to be a constant and continuous political battle. And so I think objective metrics like our declining birth rate, like our unemployment rate, like our growth rate targets, um, are the kinds of metrics that we should peg legal immigration to so that we right-size it, whatever that number is. Uh, you've got to come up with a coherent formula and it's got to spit out a number. That could be 100%, 200%, 300% increase from what we're seeing today. Uh, it should be it should be uh, based on needs, right? And there, there are different kinds of needs. Some cities need, uh, you know, unskilled labor. Some cities, cities need very high-skilled labor, right? We are, are the envy of the world. We can essentially um, get the kind of labor that we need and be very picky about it, um, which is what makes us wonderful. You, you don't see an immigration 
immigration crisis towards China because nobody wants to go to China. You don't see an immigration crisis towards Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua because nobody wants to go to those places. People want to come here because we're the greatest country in the, in the planet. And so what we have to do is we have to learn how to manage that at the border. We've seen today, we spent a lot of time seeing why it's become increasingly dysfunctional, particularly in, not, you know, not to get overly political, but particularly under this presidency. We've seen the millions and millions of people who are uh, coming into this country undocumented. Uh, you've seen the policies that have created that. And I'm sure if you've read your policy brochures that have been distributed, or if you've just been reading the news, you've seen the policies that have created uh, this chaos uh, at the border. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we know that right now our country seems incapable of solving big problems. And I think that's one of the major, major fears that we have as Americans, right? Is this concept that uh, we can't solve big problems. And obviously this is a, a big problem. This has risen in many polls, and not all the polls, the number one issue in this presidential election. I mean, think about that. You know, that's not the economy, it's not crime, it's, it's immigration, right? And I think the current administration underestimated how important this issue would be coming into the sort of final stretch of the electoral year. So um, that's why we're all here. We're all here to see it firsthand. We're here to, to understand it, to be able to advocate, to go back into our communities, to go back, uh, you know, if you are members of the press, if you are, um, you know, influencers and, and, and in the media, to go out there and tell the real story of, of, of how this is impacting our country, of what the solutions are. And, and the hope is that, you know, everything is political. like that? It wasn't. In 1980, we had 220. You guys remember that? If any of you watch the Griselda Blanco uh, Netflix <laughs> series, you'll get, a, you'll get a sense of what it was like uh, in the 1980s in Miami. And so we're pro-law enforcement. We have the lowest unemployment in America, highest wage growth. We've grown uh, 138% since 2019. Um, and, and we've lowered taxes to the lowest level ever. We grew 14% last year, 12% the year before. And we passed that savings along to our customers residents uh, who uh, don't deserve to pay more in taxes. And, and that has had a, 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 a cyclical effect that has been positive as opposed to what I call the death spiral that we're seeing in a lot of American cities where they continue to raise taxes. People leave. They have a big budgetary hole. They raise taxes to fill that hole. More people leave and, and so on and so forth, which I think creates a death spiral. So uh, I'm here to answer questions. Um, I hope that uh, what I've said has been informative and um, I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Sir. Quick question. You you spoke about migration yeah. and about the residents that are there. Yeah. But what about the people that want to come and work yeah. and then go home? They don't want to migrate. Yeah. They, they want to keep sure. their families at home, but they'd like to come, enjoy the economic... <laughs> Benefits. Benefits of, yeah. of working here, sending their money at home, yeah. sending their money home, raising the level of their families at sure. home without bringing the children yeah. and all the, the other people with them. I would say two things about that. Number one, there has to be a rational nexus between the need for that kind of labor and what we're allowing. And I don't think, I think that there's a huge disconnect there, right? And I think the number two part is when you think about depowering China, Right? And not a lot of people talk about this. When you think about the 500 or $600 billion of trade and, and stealing of IP surplus that they get on an annual basis, that's them getting our money, our, our wealth on an annual basis. And you think about the concept of decoupling or nearshoring, right, and creating some of that manufacturing either in our country, 
you know, preferably, or in places that are close to our country that can be considered allies, you can create prosperity in home country so that people don't have to do that, right? They're getting paid enough money, they're providing for their families, and then we have a secure supply chain. We saw during COVID how vulnerable our supply chain was, right? I think that's one of the, I hate to say that anything positive came out of COVID, but if anything positive came out of COVID, it highlighted some of our vulnerabilities. And it, it, it reminded us, hey, we're very dependent on China, not just in terms of the hundreds of millions, you know, billions of dollars that we're sending them. We are incredibly dependent on their manufacturing. And that's something that we should change over the course of our, of our, of, of my, um, my generation, if, if, you know, if we want to support our country. Can you, so you're in Miami, right? Yeah. And so you're dealing with a very different border situation. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between like the way it's enforced here versus where you have, yeah. you're surrounded by water, right? Yeah. So yeah. And, and, and you know, it's interesting as I was uh, in Hidalgo in the last stop and I was looking at the water differential, right? Yeah. In terms of distance, it's a lot closer, the land than the 90 miles, right? Exactly. <laughs> than in, in Miami, uh, you know, but, the people who come on these makeshift rafts, essentially, you know, you, 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 you've got to think about yourself, put yourself in their shoes, yeah. right? How desperate do you have to be, right? To get in a, a makeshift craft, sometimes with your kids, right? With young, you know, the whole Elian was a young, young child, right? You're putting your life at risk, your child at risk. You don't have any propulsion, no power. You're trying to, uh, um, you know, navigate without any sort of navigational tools, oftentimes. I mean, think about, number one, the promise of prosperity, right? The dream of living a better life. But think about the despair also that you're leaving, yeah. right? And so um, it, it's, it's just very sad, you know, for me um, as a Cuban-American, as someone who had to, whose parents had to leave their country of origin, right? Uh, at the same time, you know, this country has given us everything, right? I mean, I, I was the first Miami-born mayor of my city. Um, so it also shows what immig how immigrants can contribute. Right? Because it's not just now one generation with my parents, now it's a second generation with my contribution, giving back to my city and, and not just not just uh, having a private sector existence, but also giving back in, in the sense of having a public sector you know, uh, affiliation right? and, and trying to, to be helpful. So that's a beautiful story. And that is a quintessential American story. So we have to tell that story too. Right? And I think sometimes that gets lost in the rhetoric, I think. signal that I think has been sent for far too long is, you know, do it. Are you, so are you seeing apprehensions going up number-wise in, yes. in your area? Okay. Yes. And so you have, like the same as the seven more here or, or not? I, I, I really wouldn't know how to compare, but I'll give, you an, I'll give you one statistic, right? Our public school systems. Last year, we went up 14,000 new students. Now, a big school is 2,000, right? Like anyone knows a big public school is 2,000 kids. That's seven new public schools in one year, right? So you have to assimilate that it's a huge tax on resources it's a huge you know what i mean I'm, i would say the reason why we're better off doing it is often some of these major cities that you see complaining about it is a we've been doing it for so long it's kind of like us being hurricane resilient like we've dealt with hurricanes for such a long period of time that we've become and, and i think b our economy is very strong right we're economically very strong but that that should not be the the case right that should not be the status quo and and, and you know frankly you know, the human trafficking that's happening at our border, the tens of thousands of dollars that each people is, are paying, plus the risk that they're taking to cross. Right? I think that I've read articles that it's more profitable for the cartel to, to cross people on the border than to sell drugs. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. And so I think we have to give it the same attention that we gave it, you know, in the 80s when we, when we, when we saw how it was impacting American cities, the drug trade, and we went, we collaborated with Colombia, and we went after Escobar, we went after why isn't that happening right now? Right? There doesn't seem to be much collaboration, much cooperation uh, either. Um, and so uh, I, I think the catch and release was a big problem. You know, when you, when before, you know, if you wanted to get asylum, which now is taking up to four to seven years, uh, Sole was telling me, I read an article in Atlanta, so it was four and a half years on average 
to get an asylum hearing. If you're waiting in country, that's one thing. If you're waiting in Mexico, if you're, if you're already in the U.S., everything, all the negative stuff that attaches to that is there, right? And so that's been a major policy shift that I think can be changed on day one uh, with a different attitude. Mary, you mentioned human trafficking, and I work in counter human trafficking. Yeah. What are you seeing in Miami as far as trends with human trafficking? It's, look, in every major city, it's an issue. Um, we see it. Um, we have a task force with our state attorney's office uh, and our police department that we work together. We also we also see it elevated in big events. We have big events like Super Bowls and stuff like that. We see a lot of that, particularly in, in the realm of, of sex trafficking. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's an issue. You know, again, it's it's people are paying tens of thousands of dollars, right? I mean, think about it: uh, tens of thousands of dollars to try to traverse and, and come here. It's, it's it's tragic, and that never gets talked about. When I, I don't think it gets talked about enough. I, I think there's all these questions about humanity. What about the lack of humanity in in, in making people, you know, pawns, right? Like 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 you know, economic weapons for the cartel. Very few people talk about that, uh, and I think that's something. That's the human side. That you know, human side of, and, and of course the dangers, right? Uh, we talked about it in the case of Cuba. You're, you know, it's very dangerous. But I mean, even in in this case, it's extremely. Beware of alligators. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Any questions? Yes, sir. Um, if Congress were consulting you on how to right size immigration, yeah. what would you advise them to do? I would advise them to make it objective, right? And I would say look at objective metrics like. Uh, what, what do we want to be at? Targeted growth. Where do we? Want, you know, we have a declining birth rate, right? Which means we have population contraction. So that we have to, you have to counteract that. Um, I would look at uh, the need for skilled and unskilled workers in particular markets, right? Every market is different. You can't. It's not a one size. You know, we're just talking about borders not being one size fits all. Same in, in cities, right? In a city like Miami, we definitely need high skilled tech. We're looking to, to create a tech economy. Right, so that would be the kind of worker that we would want. But we also want uh, people who want to work in restaurants, right? If we want to open up a restaurant to serve uh, people. So we have a vast variety of needs, but that may not be the case for other cities. So I think you, you need to have a, a coherent understanding of what the needs are and match needs to people. That could be a significant part of the solution if you have an increase of 100%, 200%, 300% in legal immigration, right? And I think most Americans agree with legal immigration, right? And they even agree that Maybe we're not at the right levels of legal immigration, right? So uh, I think that that's what I would advise Congress, depoliticize it, make it objective. The beauty of that also is that the numbers can fluctuate over time, right? And so you don't have to keep coming back to the well and having this debate and this argument that obviously has become toxic and has become a political football. Uh, you speak to a lot of Democrats in Miami-Dade County. Yeah. For a lot of people, even mentioning immigration or the border seems to be a trigger for some kind of racial animus. How would you recommend politicians, but Republican politicians specifically, discuss issues like this? Well, I'll give you a, an example, a political example, right? So Miami-Dade County in 2016 was plus 30 for Hillary. In 2020, it was plus 8 for Biden. And in 22, it was plus 14 for DeSantis and plus 10 for Marco. Mm-hmm. Right, so that is a forty big sea change. Swing, yes, right, and I think a big part of that was actually perpetuated by Venezuelans and Cubans, new arrival Cubans and Venezuelans, right, who, by and large, were were very much in favor of Trump's policies yeah. vis-a-vis those two countries, right. So, again, you can we can debate about this all day long, but you know he, uh, you know, Trump's posture with Venezuela, where he supported Guaido and created this coalition and. You know, a bunch of countries internationally supported uh, that sort of government in, in, in um, opposition government. Um, that was viewed very favorably by the Venezuelan community. Um, the same with Cuba, where he rolled back a lot of the Obama era politics uh, and policies. That was viewed very favorable. I think it, I heard one statistic, he got 75% of new arrival Cubans, 75% yeah. of a demographic. Um, that changes that. That's what creates that pendulum. Right, when you, particularly when you consider that Miami-Dade is about a third, a third, a third, a third Republican, a third uh, independent, and a third Democrat. So what you're really fighting for is that middle third, right? Uh, and so, and by the way, that, that's a microcosm of the United States, mm-hmm. right? Oftentimes, um, and particularly in the swing states, right? Um, it's a few tens of tens of thousands of votes that, that decide, uh, that make the decision. So I think it, it, it's about paying attention. It's about listening. And it's about effectuating policies that are connected to what people want. And I think that the, the current administration just blew it. They just totally 
you know, underestimated the severity of the problem, um, were ideological about it in a way that was disconnected from what the American people wanted, and now they're playing catch-up when it's potentially too late. Okay, we'll do one more question. Does anyone else have questions? Your comments on immigration with possible reform. What do you think about the idea of allowing states or local jurisdictions to have some kind of a say in the issuing of visas? I love it. Workers? Well, I, I'll help tell you this. I like having having a state in some sort of enforcement, right? Like I like the idea of of states uh, and localities being able to be part of the enforcement mechanism. Like I don't see why you would discourage them, right? It's like you're discouraging a state or a locality from helping you enforce your own law, right? I think that's uh, I'm sure that the, for the partners would appreciate it. And by the way, we do things, a lot of things already in partnership um, for a variety of reasons. We may pull over someone who's a fugitive and has doesn't have immigration status. We, we, were, we would collaborate under those circumstances or apprehend someone. We would collaborate. So there, the collaboration's a must. I don't, I don't see why you would discourage that. You should encourage that. And by the way, it's also a resource leverage, right? If, if, if this is only a federal government issue, you're only going to get... X number of dollars to solve the problem. If you let other governments be part of the solution, you can multiply that number. Make sense? Okay, great. Well, thank you, Mayor Suarez. It was after hearing Mayor Suarez talk that we heard one more talk, and this one was a first person little tale about H2A visas. H-2A visas are essentially migrant worker visas. So you are legally following the letter of the law to have people come into the country, work seasonally, and then go home. And the man who spoke to us owns Titan Farms in South Carolina. They are primarily a peach growing operation. They told a very compelling tale about how they are desperately trying to follow the rules. They believe they are about one-third of the farming industry with the rest of the farming industry hiring illegal, undocumented labor. And they want a free shake from the government. You want to know what? It sounds like the kind of thing that Andrew Heaton's going to really, really cover when he does an episode about this junket. So I'll leave the meat on the bone to him. What happened afterward was my first face-to-face with. The wall, often talked about, often discussed, less controversial when it was a fence in the 2000s with George Bush. But now, there it was, standing in all of its rusty erection, the wall. Okay, we are at the border wall. This is the closest that I've got to it. I've driven by it a few times taking a few pictures but the wall that I'm at now is Greg Abbott's border wall meaning that President George W. Bush built a border fence that was a lot of embankment and levee uh, concrete topped by a fence that Trump obviously famously built his wall uh, that was stopped in 2020 now, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas has taken the same material that Trump built his wall out of and has begun building it again. And so I am coming up to it for the first time, touching it. It has a very uh, oxidized texture, as you can see in the photos. Uh, uh, for me, it is roughly... <laughs> Uh, I mean, significantly larger. Not only does it have these very large spires, but also it has uh, these six-foot elements uh, uh, above it, uh, a big uh, kind of, uh, you know, hockey board-style panels up on top of it. Uh, But, you know, it is is legit. It It is exactly what you have come to expect, looking out into... A uh, you know a very very thicketed region. You know it's it's uh, it's hard in this moment right now to understand exactly how 
the concept of a border wall has become something as emotionally fraught as it has. Because standing here now, it, it feels very utilitarian. Uh, as I look up, I see not only this, the lights that would illuminate it at night, it also has cameras on it. And uh, right behind me is a uh, RV park for retirees. <laughs> but yeah, that, that is something that is like, it, it's, it's hard to realize that for the last, you know, eight years, the concept of a border wall is something that has like brought people to tears when you talk to it, when you look at it right now and it just kind of looks like a thing. Finally, our last stop was by far the most emotionally impacting. It was a trip to Catholic Charities. And I'm not going to step on it because I'd rather you just hear my voice as I walked out. We were not allowed to record inside because uh, they want to protect you know, the dignity of the folks who had made this trip. But here are my thoughts. Just leaving Catholic Charities. This is a humanitarian respite center in McAllen. And I, I gotta say, man, it was really intense. About 160 people are there now. People come in and out. They stay roughly one or two days. Um, the majority of the people there this time were Haitian, which I think anyone who's heard me talk about this issue has always come back to the, the same moment where I saw, you know, uh, hundreds of Haitian people that were at the border to make me realize, like, well, what, what is going on here? Um, you know, as I'm standing here, there's a woman walking who's pregnant with her kid. Uh, uh, we went there, uh, talked to the folks who are running it. It is uh, certainly a charity that is worthwhile. Uh, people sleeping on mattresses. Uh, they have a functioning kitchen. We were uh, spent a little bit of time making uh, bags for them, but it's regardless of where you land on this issue, and there are a million different, very serious and very, very important things that need to go into dissecting this problem, and they do need to be taken both separate and seriously. But I'll just say this: when you walk into a room and you look into these folks' eyes. And they are at the end of a journey, or at least the middle of a journey, but they are at the end of something that, by all accounts, is something extraordinarily dangerous. Um, it puts into perspective that like, this is at a tremendous cost that these folks have, have come uh, here for. Just kind of stay. And there we go. My trip to the border. In summation, it should be of no surprise that having dove deeper into an issue that is very, very hotly discussed, we come away with more complexity than we do solutions. There is no doubt that the increase and in diversity of people on the border is alarming. When you are looking, at a bunch of people who speak Creole and some who speak Chinese that were apparently in that facility over the last seven days, then you understand that the journey people are making, a dangerous, dangerous journey for many, is not from where we thought we had a handle on. These are not Mexican nationals that are coming in. Surely they are as well. But you are, it's not even just the Northern Triangle. We are now drawing from the Caribbean, Pacific, and in many cases, as far flung as Syria. So there is an incentive issue here. But there's also a humanitarian issue. What happens when these people get here? How do you handle it? What's the best way to deal with it? And when they are expanding and stressing 
city resources in places like New York and Chicago, well, what do you do? One of the things that we were told by our peach growing friend was that the gigantic influx on the border has not shown up in the farms. Certainly not through his process of trying to do it legally. So you get a lot of people going somewhere. I have no doubt that this sort of influx is going to be something that continues to change the election. And I wish I had a better sense of how it is going to affect everything. Except for one. And it's kind of stupid. But no matter what the situation is, and no matter what the solution is, I do believe that it benefits Trump. Donald Trump introduced himself to America as the border man. And now the border's crazy. So if you look at this in the simplest possible strategic pattern, then you can't help but say people might want to hear from the border man. Do I think that Donald Trump is a particularly enlightened person on this subject? No, I don't. But do I believe he has a natural advantage over Joe Biden? in this particular situation, 100%. I do. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you'd like to find the program on TikTok, you can. Justin R. Young. Instagram is Justin R. Young. YouTube is Politics, Politics, Politics. On X, we are Justin R. Young for me. PX3 tweets for the show. Email the program, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy. PX3podcast.com. If you want to support me with a one-time donation, it is paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is PX3Cash, and you can send me anything you'd like in the mail. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show, like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10. Including Sam, John, Niemeister, Edwin, and Vogloria Young for King of the New World Order, Brian, Edison, Jeremy, a dog named Checker, Sarah Jeannie, Spider Rogue, Matthew, Dr. G, Dustin, Brad, D Laser, Nick, just another pilot, Middle Age Mike, Utah Jimmy Montana, The Gen, Alo, D, really? Andrew, Lisa, Fat Tony's PJs from New York. Devon, the CFP, Gloria Young, my mom. Gray Zone, Robert, Jay, Neil, Ye Old Pinball Shop. John, DP4 Bongo. Neil, his nerdiness, Charles. Audrey, Stoll, Adler Spot. Darren, Idris Arslanian. Berkeley, Steven. Nomadic Terran. Molly's delightful demeanor. Adam, Chief Andy. Robert, Casey, Paul. If you'd like your name on that, well, only one place to do it. Take politics seriously. Dot com. Next time any of you hear from me, I will be in the Palmetto State for what I believe is the last ticks of the clock for any realistic chance to change this race. I'm not optimistic, but we'll be there. For you, that is on Friday. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this is the only show that dares discuss all three.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.